You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn to Genesis 38. We're going to begin reading with verse 24. Genesis 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are. The signet and the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in, in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, for your your blessing. We ask, Father, that you would teach us from your word. We pray, Father, that you would teach us from this passage. In many ways it's a passage that's maybe not as familiar to us as some of the other passages. Father, we ask, Father, that you would bless us this morning uh, from your word, speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. How many, um, how many have ever heard a sermon on Genesis 38? <laughs> I didn't expect too many hands to go up. Uh, I had never heard one either. Uh, prior to doing research on Genesis 38 in preparation for preaching. Um, I had mentioned a a good while ago, way back when we were in Genesis 19, that um, in Genesis 19 is filled with some stuff that's uh, pretty difficult. And I had mentioned that I have a commentary on my shelf, and it's one that's recognized as being very helpful by a lot of people that I really respect. But at the end of each chapter... This uh, commentary has a little section called homiletical suggestions. And um, uh, under the, the phrase, uh, under that subheading, uh, the author said that much of this chapter is unsuitable uh, for homiletical use. Now, what does homiletical mean? Homiletical is a $10 word. I should say with inflation, it's a $50 word. It's a $50 word for preaching. Uh, for preaching. In other words, what the author was saying is that much of Genesis 19 was unsuitable for the pulpit. And I pointed that out to you. Um, I can't wait to see what he had to say about Genesis 38. And um, he wrote, I think I put down, uh, he put down entirely unsuited to homiletical use, much as the devout Bible student may glean from the chapter. Now, what, what this author is saying 
He's not saying that there isn't any lessons. He's not saying that it isn't the Word of God. He's not saying that there, there, there isn't an importance to the chapter. If you read his commentary, you see that's not what he means. What he's saying is there's things about it that are unsuitable uh, for preaching in public. And, of course, with that, uh, we, we're certainly going to be sensitive as we go through this text because uh, there, there is. This, this is one of those texts where parental guidance uh, is certainly advised, uh, viewer discretion advised. That's why I chose to begin reading with verse 24. Now, I can take you through the chapters here. Uh, we have young years in our, in our group, and um, I can take you through this chapter and take you through in a way by the use of euphemisms, and we can clearly see what's taking place here. But I think we should preach on Genesis 38. I don't take the position of this commentary. I think we should preach through it simply because the Apostle Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, may be competent and equipped for every good work, right? Uh, Genesis 38 would fall uh, into that. That having been said, we need to be very sensitive with the material that we have here. If you look at verse 1 with me, you'll see that we have a time frame there. Do you see that in verse 1? It happened at that time. What time? Well, the context makes it clear what time. It's, the, it's approximately the time when Joseph is sold into slavery, isn't it? That's what we looked at last time. Uh, where Joseph is sold into slavery and to cover up this, I mean, prior to him being sold in slavery, there was a, there was a conspiracy on the behalf of all of the brothers to put him to death, wasn't there? And uh, it was Judah who said, you know, what good is it going to do if we put him to death? Let's, uh, let's sell him. And instead of being murderers, we could be human traffickers and make a couple of bucks. And, of course, um, they, they get their, their uh, they, they slaughter a goat. They take his fancy robe that his father had given him. They dip it in blood in verse 31. They send it back to their father and and he's led to come to the conclusion that Joseph has been put to death by a, a ferocious uh, animal. And it's really clear that, um, I mean, Jacob is, uh, he is determined to mourn until he goes to the grave. And so it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. And notice in, in the ESV anyway, it says he turned aside. He turned aside. So what is taking place here? Judah is leaving his father's house, isn't he? And of course, now this is going to be conjecture on my part. Um, but, and I'm not the only, I mean, I'm certainly not the first one to think of this. I, I've read others who have come to this conclusion, but it is conjecture. I think he's leaving his father's house because it's very difficult for him to watch his father mourn. Think about it for a little bit. Imagine watching your father mourn like that when you had this secret going on in your heart. I mean, unless you're a complete psychopath. You know what I mean? So I think, I think this has a lot to do with him leaving it. And of course, this is what sin does, isn't it? This is what sin does to us. Whenever we start entertaining sin, what do we do? We begin to shy away from the believing community. That's what we do. 
Um, as soon as we find, as soon as we discover ourselves saying to ourselves, man, I don't know if I feel like going over there, or I don't feel like being with these folks, man, that should be a warning. That should be a warning to us right away. You don't want to ask yourself, now, why am I feeling like that? What's going on? And answer it then and deal with it right then and there. Don't allow it to, don't allow it to get any more steam than that. Um, here, Judah, what's he doing? He's leaving his father's house. We're told that he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. In verse 2, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. This is the, this is the name of uh, her father. I think we can read this. If we're not careful, we can think that his wife's name is Shua. This is her father's name, Shua. And he marries her. He takes her and marries her. Um, so what is Judah doing? Well, he's leaving his father's house and he's following in the footsteps of Uncle Esau, isn't he? Isn't this what Esau did? Uh, Esau left the house and he took Canaanite wives, didn't he? Well, this is exactly what, this is exactly what Judah is doing. In verse 4, or in verse 3, rather, uh, um, she conceives and bears Judah a son. His name's Ur. Verse 4, another son is born, Onan. And in verse 5, another third son is born. His name is Shelah. It's interesting that we're told, we're given a detail that Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. Just something kind of humorous. I do believe God has a great sense of humor. You're going to like this. This really is kind of funny. Do you know what Kizib means? It means a town of lies. Now, who names the town a town of lies? I mean, who does that? How does a name, how does a town get to be named a town of lies? I mean, if we we're to bring this into contemporary English, what would we call the place? Washington, <laughs> That's pretty good. I was thinking like Deceitville, you know, or maybe Liesburg, you know, uh, because the name itself actually means... You know, it, 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 the actual name itself, like Liesburg, you know, or Deceitville, or we could, we could put up with, probably come up with some other stuff um, to add to that. Um, but it goes back to one of the points that I made last time that, the, you know, Jacob, how did Jacob start out? Jacob started out as the deceiver, didn't he? And that sin, that, 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 that vice has worked its way into the hearts of his, of his children. And I think it's interesting that this third son is born in a town called a town of lies. Uh, because that's what Judah, Judah is living a life of lies, isn't he? A life of lies. Now, in verse 6, Judah took Ur, his firstborn, and uh, he took a wife for him, and his wife's name is Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And the modern reader has a lot of trouble with that. And the modern reader has trouble with the idea of the Lord judging someone and judging them and putting them to death. And uh, we, we, we must not skip over this without making some comment about that. One of the reasons why the modern reader has so much trouble with this is because the modern reader has no sense of God's holiness or God's justice. If we have no sense of God's holiness, no sense of God's justice, then this is going to be difficult for us. 
But to the measure that we understand that our God is holy, to the measure that we understand He is just, then it becomes surprising that He doesn't put us all to death. And then we'll begin to actually walk rightly and and see that every breath we take is a breath of grace, isn't it? Now, God is amazingly patient and merciful, but uh, he, he puts Ur to death. We're not told what, what Ur has done, but the Lord does not put up with him. And by the way, some people will say, you know, that's an Old Testament thing. I had an elder of a local church here in the valley tell me one time. He told me this. I was aghast. He said, you know, my son come to me and they're kind of studying some of the Old Testament stuff in Sunday school. And he said, come to me. And he said, you know, dad, the Lord put a lot of people to death in the Old Testament. And, and this is what he told his son. He goes, yeah, yeah, God was kind of angry in the Old Testament, but he made it up to us in the new. This is an elder. If it would have been just anybody, I'm, I mean, okay. <laughs> you see the idea that God would have to make it up to us. Like all of a sudden, like oh, God was bad. He did something he shouldn't have done. You know, but, but that, is, that is the way we read the Word of God, isn't it? We put God in the dock like He has to defend Himself before our tribunal when it's actually the opposite. You see that? Now, um, in verse 8, Judas said to Onan, okay, this is the second born. Ur has been put to death. Judas said to Onan, Take your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is real strange to our ears. And what does this involve? Well, back in ancient times, it involved something called known as a Levite marriage. Okay, if a man has four sons, the oldest one gets married. And before any children are born to this union, uh, if the oldest son dies, then uh, the, the next uh, oldest son would take his widow, marry her, and then propagate the family name. Now, um, that seems bizarre to us. And as I look around, I'm guessing that some of you ladies are really glad we don't practice that today. <laughs> but here's the thing. The line, the family line, and perpetuating the family line um, was so important to the ancients. Secondly, children. Just having children was so important to the ancients. And that's actually to their credit. And thirdly, children without children. I mean, if you made your living in the field or doing the hard work of raising livestock, I mean, you're going to reach a day where you're physically unable to do it. Then how are you going to survive once you reach that time? How are you going to survive? Well, you're going to survive if you have some children that are now old enough to be able to resume the work. So it was really important. It was an important part of a pension plan back in that time. So here it is Onan's, it is Onan's duty uh, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. And Onan, uh, he takes uh, Tamar as his wife. And then if you look at verse 9, you can see what he does. Um, he just simply, if you read verse 9, you can see that he just takes advantage. I mean, what, what, what he does in taking advantage of Tamar is, is absolutely repugnant. And um, 
Uh, in verse 10, we're told that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. And then in verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Now, again, this is Eastern, ancient Eastern custom that's foreign to us, but Judah would have had the authority to say to Tamar, listen, go back to your home, go back to your father's house, wait until Shelah's of marriageable age. And in this way, uh, Tamar would go back to her father's house engaged to Shelah, awaiting for him to reach marriageable age, and then the wedding would take place. That's how this worked. And uh, Judah sends Tamar back to her father's house. And you'll notice there in verse 11, uh, Judah feared uh, that Shelah would die like his brothers. Now, Judah isn't getting this figured out. Judah doesn't come to the conclusion that Er and Onan have been put to death because of their wickedness. He thinks it has something to do with Tamar. At least that's the way it appears, isn't it? So Tamar, she went and remained in her father's house. Now, we need to understand. Now, Tamar's in her father's house. Now, Tamar can't do anything. She's got to remain there and wait for Shayla to become... She, she can't move on with her life, remarry. She's at her father's house. She's stuck there until Shayla is of marriageable age. Now, in verse 12, we're told in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted... So what happens here? Judah's wife dies. He mourns. He's comforted. And then he goes up to a place called Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his, his old Adam, uh, Dolomite buddy, Hira. So they go up to Timnah. Now in verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, verse 14, she took off her gar or widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, what is going on? Ju Tamar has been in her father's house for we don't know how long, but it becomes clear to her that it is not Judah's intentions to give Shelah to Tamar. Now, what is Tamar to do? She's engaged to Shelah, but it doesn't look like there's going to be a wedding. Now, what's going to happen to Tamar when her father dies? Now, Tamar is in, a, she is really in a rough spot here, a really, really rough spot. Now, uh, Judah's wife dies, and he's off to Timnah. And, you know, one thing that Tamar knows, she knows her father-in-law. She knows him all too well. She knows he's headed up to Timnah. So what does she do? She takes off her widow's garments, and she puts on a different garment, a garment that would make her look like a prostitute. And she goes up to Timnah. And uh, she, uh, uh, she goes up and waits at the roadside for, uh, for Judah to come. And, of course, when uh, Judah sees her in verse 16, he propositions her. And uh, she says she responds to his proposition, well, what will you give me? And he answers, well, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. Again, that might sound pretty bizarre to us, but that would have been... That would have been uh, that would have been a lot of currency in this particular time. And she asks for a pledge. So what will you give me for a pledge? And he replies, well, what, what do you want? And she says, well, how about your signet ring 
and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Now, the signet would have been a little cylinder with a little design on it that if you pushed it into something soft, it would, make the, it, would, it, would, it would reproduce the sign on it, much like a notary seal. A notary has a seal. They put it on a document and they squeeze it, and it leaves an imprint which says that this has been notarized by someone who has the authority to notarize. Uh, kings had these things. They had rings, signet rings. If they wrote a letter, they would, they would put a piece of wax on the letter and they'd push their signet ring into it so that you knew that there wasn't a forgery, but the um, actual document did come from the king. So uh, a person would wear these, and this was kind of your signature back in that day. If you had to sign anything legal, you would use, you would use this little cylinder. It probably had a little cord around it that he would wear around his neck. And then his staff, actually, generally speaking, the staff would have some kind of insignia on it that would, that would make it clear that it was, that it was yours. Uh, so um, the deal is done, and the deed is done. And after the deed is done, then uh, Tamar, she, she arose, we're told in verse 19. She went away. She took off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. And then in verse 20 and following Judah, he makes good on his promise. He's promised uh, her a young goat. He sends the goat off with this Adulamite buddy, and he takes it up, and he's, lo- he's, he's looking for the prostitute up by the road, and he doesn't find her. And as he asks the men of the city, he, the, the, none of them even know what he's talking about. They, they said there's been no prostitute here. If you look at verse 23, Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own, meaning his staff and his signet, his signet uh, and his, uh, the signet and cord. Uh, he said, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. And here you see his character. What's he concerned about here? He's concerned about being laughed at. He's concerned about how this makes him look. Because it makes him look like he's been duped by a prostitute. He doesn't want to be viewed that way. That's, that's where Judah is at. Now, in verse 24, about three months later, Judah is told that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Uh, moreover, she is pregnant. Now, she conceives. Okay. She conceives a child to her father-in-law. And we all know what happens about three months after that, don't we? The physical effects of the, con- uh, of the conception began to, sh- to reveal themselves. And uh, word gets back to Judah. And notice how Judah responds. Um, Judah says at the end of verse 24, bring her out and let her be burnt. You, know, you ask yourself, why, why is it being so harsh? I mean, according to the, the, the laws back then, yeah, this is a capital crime. Uh, but generally not a crime that would be punished by burning. And you have to wonder, why, why is Judah... Why is it, you know, okay, she's engaged to Shayla. He doesn't seem to have any intentions of ever giving Shayla to her. But it's almost like, you know, you could see his anger towards her. Burn her. And you can't help but to wonder, is Judah just trying to get rid of her? She is a little bit of a problem to him. Because in his mind, Ur and Onan, they both died somehow, their deaths somehow related to her. And he's got this thorn on his side. Everybody's waiting for him just to, to give the date here so that she can be married and move on with her life. Well, if she's burned, this again is conjecture on my part. But if she's burned, then she's completely out of the way. But notice, notice what uh, Tamar says. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, cord and the staff. Rut row. 
rot row. He's worried about people thinking he got duped by a prostitute. He got duped by his daughter-in-law, didn't he? Now Judah identifies him in verse 26. And notice what he says. He says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. Now, the, the text is not telling us that Tamar is righteous in her conduct here. And the purpose of my message this morning isn't it to try to sort out uh, to what degree Tamar is at fault or not at fault here. I think we need to understand that Tamar is really up against it, really up against it. But what the text is telling us here, when Judah says that she is more righteous than I, well, she certainly is more righteous in this than Judah is. No question about that. And that's what's being said. Now, in verse 27, we're told that when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. In other words, according to the midwife, um, the, the, the child that, that managed to get his hand out, that's the firstborn. Ties a little scarlet thread on his, on his hand, and then he, he withdraws his hand. And then we're told that uh, as he drew back his hand, verse 29, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called uh, Zerah. Now, okay, all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, <laughs> for reproof, <laughs> for correction, and training in righteousness. The question before us now is, <laughs> how in the world is this? Uh, what is this teaching us? In what ways are we reproved? In what ways are we being corrected? And in what ways does this train us in righteousness? Let's just use the Apostle Paul as our outline. How is Genesis 38? What is, what is Genesis 38 teaching us here? And the, the, the answer is... It, Genesis 38 takes us to the gutter, doesn't it? This is the gutter. I mean, Judah is in the gutter, isn't he? He sold his brother off for 20 pieces of silver. He's left his father's house, presumably, again, conjecture on my part, but I think he's left his father's house because he can't put up with his father's mourning because it reminds him of his evil deed. He leaves his father's house. He marries a Canaanite. He knows better than that. Canaanite woman. He marries outside of the covenant community, has these children. Then he gets this thing with Tamar going on. He prostitutes himself. I mean, it just, it's just, it just gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? This is the gutter. It's the gutter. Now, if we take a look, and, and you know, let me just say this. I mean, there, this actually, as we think about going into the gutter, this in many ways can remind us of ourselves, can it not? You know, as I was thinking this through yesterday morning, I was thinking of how many times I have come alongside with people and they've, they've, they've kind of spilled their hearts to me. And they've spilled their hearts over their past. And make no mistake about it. It's the gutter. 
It's the gutter. And to be quite truthful, I think all of us need to make the confession and not lead us in the ways I think about my own sin in my own life. It was the gutter. It's the absolute gutter. Sin has this effect on us. What does sin do to us? Sin makes us feel dirty because we have these consciences. God has given us a conscience. That conscience tells us that God exists, tells us that there's right, tells us that there's wrong. And when we've done wrong, it informs us in a very painful way that we're lawbreakers, that we're unclean, that we're dirty, that we're disgraceful, that we're filthy, that we're disgusting. Does everybody, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's what our consciences do. Now, that's why a lot of people, I know that's why a lot of people are not sitting here right now, this morning. I know that because they've said things to me like, not with my past, not with my history. But Genesis 38 shows us the way out of the gutter. And how does it do that? Well, it was, it seemed, probably seemed like an odd scripture memory verse this morning, but if you turn back to Ruth... 220, what was it, 225 or 224? 224. If we turn back to Ruth, we're going to see the way out. How do we get out of the gutter? There's only one way. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez. Who is Perez? Isn't he that... He's that kid that was born to Tamar, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Tamar and Judah. That's the one. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Who's David? King David. You said, oh, wait a second. King David's great-grandfather is Perez? Like the Perez... Yeah, it's Perez. Another connection, and I, I just, I smiled so much as I realized we were going to be reading Revelation chapter 5 this morning. If you turn back to Revelation 5, as I realized we were going to be reading that, I thought to myself, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. Revelation 5. This works out perfect. In, in Revelation 5, which we read earlier, here John in his vision, he sees the Father seated on the throne and his right hand is a scroll and it's sealed up with seven seals and, and a strong angel in verse 2 proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and, and John begins to weep loudly because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And then one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of who? The tribe of Judah. You mean the, the scoundrel back in Genesis 38? Yeah. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. Romans 8 is such a glorious chapter. Perhaps, I mean, it's been described by many people as the most glorious chapter in all of Scripture. And that's quite a statement because there's a lot of glorious places in Scripture. But in Romans 8, we have a verse in verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do and sending his, or by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, conquered sin in the flesh. Did you hear that? Paul's hard. Paul's difficult. It's difficult. You got to put them sentences out there and you got to, you got to work it, understanding the apostle Paul. But think about what he said. For God has done what the law weakened, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, what does that mean? The phrase in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean that Jesus comes as a sinner? No, Jesus is perfectly free of sin. The scriptures make that clear. But what does it mean that Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh? Sometimes it's described that he comes, he takes on a body that has to have nutrition. It has to have rest. It has to have all of these things that, are, that we would describe as earthly. But one of the things it describes is that Jesus comes in a line that's out of the gutter. Who? Oh, and, and, and listen, listen to me carefully. When we think about Jesus, we always need to make the distinction. Jesus is fully, he's fully human. He's also fully God. And I'm only speaking to his humanity right now. But in terms of Jesus' humanity, who is his great-grandpap? It's Judah. You know, the gutter guy? The guy back in the gutter? Think about it. If Jesus would have been born to this elite pedigree, with who of us this morning would be able to reach up and think that we could that we could have him? And that's the way that's the way Calvin, that's the way the reformers would always put that. If, if he was born to this elite, this elite pedigree, if you will, then we would never be able to reach up. We would think, well, that's for the elite. That's for people who were born. He, he's 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 for the noble. He's for the he's for the upper echelon. But. In the Father's wisdom, he, bring, he sends His Son, and He is born to this pedigree that comes and has its origin in the gutter. In the gutter. Now, what does this teach us? How is Genesis 38 profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be competent this morning and equipped for every good work? Well, one, teaching, it shows us that Judah and Tamar are in the genealogical line of Jesus. What's this mean? He's been sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. He identifies with people that are in the gutter. You're in the gutter? we got a Savior that identifies Himself with people in the gutter. How about reproof? Well, it shows us that no one is beyond Jesus' ability to redeem. You could almost hear people thinking, but you remember what Judah did now? Judah? It's hard to tell what he did now. Oh, yeah, he was up on the road, and you know the rest. 
He's too far gone for Jesus. You ever think that to yourself? That somebody's too far gone? Well, that, that, there's correction needed there, isn't there? We got teaching. We got reproof correction. It corrects us when we are tempted to say, old Judah's too far gone. Or even worse yet, when we say, I'm too far gone. I'm too far gone. My past is too bad. I, I am, I'm just, I'm too far gone. My past is too bad. My sin is too awful. You know how many times people have said that to me? Do you know how many times people have said, I just don't understand. What don't I understand? You don't understand what I did. I said, I don't even care what you did. I used to say that all the time when I was doing ministry out at the, out at the jail. I wasn't in jail. I was doing ministry out at the jail. But I used to say that all the time. People said, do you, do you listen, you, I'm going to tell you what I did. I don't want to hear what you did. I don't know what you did. What do you mean you don't want to know it? I don't care what you did. You're a lawbreaker, and I'm a lawbreaker, and we both need Jesus. But Jesus has come to save lawbreakers. That's what he's come for. He's come to save lawbreakers. So you need a resume that says lawbreaker. You got one. You got a perfect one, just like me. I don't care what you did. Oh, but you don't understand. Well, what isn't there to understand? Jesus is bigger than your sin is. That's the only part you need to understand. All right, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Jesus, how does this train us in righteousness? Well, Jesus has come to pull his people out of the gutter. We will make no progress in sanctification until we understand that Jesus doesn't just come to pull us out of the gutter. He pulls us out of the gutter in order to cleanse us, in order to wash us, in order to take that filth away, to take the disgrace away, to take the disgust away. Is our past disgraceful? Yes. Is our sin filthy? Yes. Why do we feel unclean? Because we've done unclean things. We've rolled around in the sore. But Jesus comes down into the sore, pulls us out of the sore, dies on the cross, and with his death on the cross, cleanses us from the stench of the sore. And you don't make any, you don't make any progress in the Christian life until you understand that that death on that cross has everything to do with the stench of the sin that's in our lives. It takes it away. It takes it away. So don't identify, don't run around identifying yourself as that old sinner, regardless of what that old sin was. Don't identify yourself that way, because if you're in Christ Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you're a new creation. How do you identify yourself? You identify yourself with all the names that God gives you, namely child of God, or new man, or new creation, or in Christ that's your new identity. And you can't, there's an old saying, you can't be a winner if you run around thinking like a loser. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Are we not? That's from Romans 8 too, by the way. It's a glorious chapter. It's a glorious chapter. So training in righteousness, we're now free. We're empowered to live lives and walk in holiness and justice and truth, which tells us, listen, it's not just about cleaning us up. We can't stop there. Jesus doesn't just pull us out of the gutter to clean us up. He pulls us out of the gutter so that we can walk in holiness, righteousness, and truth. Titus 2.11 tells it this way. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. If you want to just listen, that is fine. But Titus 2.11, I've got to share these verses with you. Titus 2.11 through 14. There you see in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify. You see that word purify. If Jesus sets out to purify you, you will be pure. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it's not just purification that Jesus is on about here. He doesn't just reach down in the gutter to pull us out in order just to clean us up so we can go running around in the gutter again. He reaches down in the gutter, he pulls us up, he cleans us up, and then he empowers us to begin to walk in righteousness. And if you've been pulled out of the gutter by Jesus, you will begin to walk in righteousness. If you go back to the gutter, it only proves that you've never been pulled out of the gutter. I'm not saying we can't slip and fall. We slip and fall. But a life that goes back to the gutter and lives in the gutter and walks in the gutter, that's not a good sign. So what does Genesis 38 teach us? It teaches us the way out of the gutter, amen? By the way, I think that might be a good title for this message, Out of the Gutter. What do you think of that one? Out of the Gutter. Heavenly Father, we thank you. So much more could be said, Father, but we pause for another time. Father, we do thank you and praise you, Father, that, Lord, you have come to the gutter to grab the likes of us, Father. For we, we, we were not only in the gutter, but we delighted to be in the gutter. And we would have stayed in the gutter had you not interrupted us. And if you not opened up our eyes, you not convicted us of our sins, and you not reached down with that strong hand and pulled us out, we would, we would have desired just to try to fix the gutter up and make heaven out of the gutter. But Father, you, you were pleased to pull us out. You were pleased to wash us and cleanse us with nothing shy of the blood of Christ and to give us your Holy Spirit and to give us Christ's perfect righteousness that we may walk in holiness and justice and truth and be your possession for every good work. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you. And we say that Genesis 38 shows us the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.